Thanks for joining us for the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. We're excited to have Dr. Ross Kent as the guest for today's episode. Ross has recently completed his PhD at the Manchester Institute of Biotechnology. Ross has worked on modern tools for fine-tuned regulation of gene expression in bacteria with a focus on applying statistical modeling techniques and QBD and design of experiments to rapidly engineer and optimize genetic toolkits. Ross is currently working at the University of Manchester as a postdoctoral research associate in the lab of Dr. Neil Dixon, but he will be shortly starting a new position at Syngenta as an automation scientist. In this episode, we're talking with Ross about his work, design of experiments, computer-aided biology, the impact of the coronavirus pandemic, and more. So let's take a look. Ross, I would like to welcome you to the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Thank you, Anita. It's a pleasure to have a chance to come and speak with you today. Really excited to have some interesting discussion. Great. Ross, as we heard already in the introduction, you recently completed your PhD at the Manchester Institute of Biotechnology. Can you please tell us a little bit more about what your PhD project was about? Yes, of course. So my project focused on re-engineering riboswitches for the regulation of protein production in bacteria with a particular focus on how these tools can help to express proteins, which can be particularly challenging to express. So just to tell you a little bit about what riboswitches are and sort of how they work, they are RNA structures that are found in the 5' prime untranslated region of proteins across a large number of domains of life, sort of mainly in bacteria. But what they enable us to do as synthetic biologists is to really tightly regulate and finely tune the rate at which proteins are translated inside the cell in a chemically inducible manner. So the RNA secondary structure forms a binding pocket and then on the addition or, or the binding of a particular ligand that leads to a structural rearrangement of the RNA and then that it switches on or switches off protein expression depending on the riboswitch that you're working with. The challenge with these riboswitches is they can be incredibly context sensitive. So if we as synthetic biologists want them to be nice and modular and easy to use and sort of user friendly, I guess you could say, it can be a real challenge because you know you, you change the coding sequence downstream of the of the riboswitch in your five prime UTR and performance of the switch can be really hit and miss. So sort of the early parts of my PhD were around trying to understand the causes of that context sensitivity and to try and understand what was going on with that sensitivity, but also then see if we could come up with a, a switch or a system that allows us to negate that sensitivity as much as possible. So to do this, we used a combination of functional like high throughput screening and a machine learning method to try and understand, yeah, again, like what characteristics of a particular sequence might make it more or less likely to be context sensitive. But also, if you're taking a, a, a riboswitch switch and putting it into a new context, you want to know how you could change, say, flanking sequences or sequences within the riboswitch switch itself that might make it more likely to work first time, basically. And as part of that, I applied a design of experiments, which I think I will talk a bit more about later, to basically rapidly optimize and improve the performance of the switches that we were working on. And we were quite successful in doing this and it worked really quite nicely. So then following on from that, we then working with a, another member of my lab, 
postdoc called Adokie Berapiki, who at the time was working on a protocachicoic acid biosensor. So we applied the same design of experiments methodology to optimize the biosensor that he was working on. Again, with, you know, really quite striking results. It really worked quite well. So yeah, that was been the last four years of my life. <laughs> I submitted my thesis September last year and, and finished just before Christmas. So Great. And so you mentioned that you were working with design of experiments. Yeah. And for someone who might have never heard that term before, can you please tell us a little bit about what design of experiments means and how you have used it for your work? Sure. So um, design of experiments or, or DOE, uh, first of all, it's a terrible name. <laughs> all experiments are designed to some extent. So really, it's multifactorial experimentation is sort of a better way of thinking about it and a, a much more descriptive way of naming, it, I'd say. But really, it's about using structured data and structured experimentation to allow you to understand the effects of changing multiple factors within an experimental space at once so that you can map how each of those factors impacts the response, the output that you're looking to measure. But also, and I think most interestingly, it allows you to map how those factors interact with each other. And you do this using, basically you have a, a set structure for the experiment you're going to carry out of all the factors that you want to vary. And you have a design that tells you how to systematically vary each of those factors in coordination with each other to allow you to understand in more depth what is happening within your experimental system. And then you use some statistics on the end to basically fit some models and say factor A and factor B on their own don't really have a big effect. But in combination, if you change factor A to its highest setting and factor B at its lowest setting, say, then you do see an effect. Whereas you might normally discount those two factors and say, you know, they're not important in the system. By using DOE, you can understand just a bit more about what's going on. I think kind of links into the way we're taught how to do experiments. And traditionally, you know, if you think back to sort of primary school, elementary school, science class, you're taught that you fix everything and you just change one thing, one thing at a time. And that's the only way you can understand what is happening in your experimental system. But actually that experimental approach, whilst very valid and obviously has had a massive effect on the way we discover and, and invent all sorts of things, but it's not the only way. And actually by using DOE, you can much more rapidly and efficiently map these complex, complex experimental systems, which I think is particularly relevant in biology when often the systems that we're working on are incredibly complicated and we often don't really know how they work. By taking this sort of more objective approach, I think you can better get a, a handle on what's really happening and understand where these interactions might be having really quite important effects on the outcome or the response that it is you're looking to, to try and understand. So during my work, as mentioned before, we used DOE to optimize genetic systems, which isn't something that had really been done very much before, simply because these DOE structures can be quite complex to actually execute in the lab. Say you have four factors at three different levels. You've then got, you know, if you were to do every experiment, you've got loads of different samples. All of them are different. There is no like common protocol to each tube within your experimental setup. So you have to do very bespoke things to each run within your DOE design. And that can be quite challenging just to keep track of everything in the lab. And particularly when you're talking about genetic systems, you know, the tools to go away and build structured, factorially designed 
parts was really challenging. And, you know, with DNA synthesis tools that are available now, you can actually just design those bits in a lab and you can go away and have them synthesized and really makes it a lot easier to execute these experiments in real time. But what, one thing we were able to do is basically show that using DOE, we can optimize genetic systems, but also you can understand how the genetic factors, so the genetic parts in your system, say promoter strength or ribosome binding site strength, or even say like a antibiotic resistance marker or plasmid copy number in these things that we, we just fix and we don't really often consider uh, until something goes wrong. But we show that actually you can you can rapidly optimize the system by, by tuning these, these different things, but also you can look at how those genetic parts interact with environmental factors within your process. And you can imagine, say you're a bioprocessing scientist or a fermentation scientist, you want to be using the genetic parts that you know are going to work robustly so that when you start to change environmental factors, so say incubation temperature or incubation time, that those genetic parts are going to work consistently and if they're not going to work consistently, you at least understand that they're not going to be consistent and you can take that into account. So by using DOE, we're able to map those relationships between genetic factors and environmental factors and select genetic parts that in that system interact with your environmental conditions as little as possible. So you have parts that are more robust and therefore more reusable and ultimately of greater use to the scientific community. In addition to that as well, I mentioned the, the protocatchicuric acid biosensor that we developed. So we used a slightly more modern DOE approach than is sort of generally used in most sort of fields called uh, definitive screening designs, which basically allow you to streamline and optimize that DOE workflow and that process. So in just 13 experimental runs, we were able to increase the, the performance of the biosensor that we're working on by several orders of magnitude. So yeah, it works really nicely and I'd, I'd recommend people have a go. Wow, that's very interesting and very cool. My next question is, how and when did you get interested in working in the field of computer-aided biology? So it all really came out of the DOE work that I'd been doing or at least been exposed to previously. So following on from my undergraduate degree, I worked at the University of Exeter with a colleague, a guy called Dr. Thomas Howard, who's now a principal investigator at Newcastle University. And he was the one who sort of introduced me to DOE. And that has, has led me on to the sort of the computer-aided biology world, because as I mentioned, these DOE experiments can be really complicated to execute. So if you can have a computer piece of software, liquid handling robots that are able to abstract all that complexity away from the execution stage of your DOE, then that can be really helpful. It means you don't have to spend a long time planning and meticulously labeling everything and making sure that you're really nailing the structure of that experimental protocol that's required for the DOE. So for me, that's kind of where it all started. And then through that, I sort of became a bit more aware of the tools and automation systems that are out there and some of the machine learning and sort of data management and handling difficulties that are faced by people when they're, you know, suddenly you're automating things and you can do hundreds and thousands of experiments at once rather than tens. So yeah, I guess I kind of saw a gap in my own knowledge and my own understanding, but also in the wider community, you know, that these tools aren't always necessarily available. And if they are available, they're not always easy to use. And often talking to people about my work and about DOE, which as you can probably tell once you get me talking about it, it's hard to get me to stop. <laughs> 
that people we know were, were having the same problems. So I then, when I started my PhD, which is through the British Research Council, the BBSRC, they, as part of my funding, allowed me to do a three-month professional placement internship, basically, in any company of my choosing. So I elected to go and do that at Synthase, who are an automation software company based in London, who basically are developing software to allow you to execute design of experiments and automated workflows on liquid handling platforms, but in a very hardware agnostic way. So you can run a protocol on a, on a robot, a Gilson robot in America, and then you can take that same protocol and run it on a Tekan robot in Singapore or London or Germany or wherever you'd like and know that it, it's always going to work the same. It's always going to execute that protocol the same, which again, I kind of saw as a big gap, you know, of, well, if you're wanting to do DOE and you're wanting to do more complex experimentation, you need that to actually be transferable and usable to, to everybody, right? So to really make those tools as available as possible. Right. That's very interesting. And I think, yeah, if you're using computers, I think you can really eliminate a lot of like these human errors that a lot of times happen if you do things by hand. Absolutely. And yeah, and it obviously there's a lot to the computer-aided world and, and automation outside of just people who want to do DOE. And exactly human error is, is always a big one. You know, humans are pretty awful at doing the same thing over and over and over again because we get tired and make mistakes and there's only so long you can focus for right so right very interesting and now shifting gears a little bit everybody knows right now we're in kind of like a difficult situation with the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic how has your work been affected by the current COVID-19 situation? Fairly drastically. So the University of Manchester was was forced to shut down the labs and, and to shut down the vast majority of the university with everybody working remotely. So I was in a particularly tricky situation where I'd just started a new postdoc in February, which was only a very short-term postdoc as well. So it was a six-month contract, which actually ended last Friday. So basically the whole of that position for me was spent in lockdown, apart from a few weeks on either end. So yeah, big impact. It's been tough, but I've still been able to do a lot of stuff and, and get things done. We're able to sort of take the more in silico aspects of the project that we're working on and focus on those and do as much remotely as we can. But you know, there's no denying that we've not been anywhere near as, as productive as any of us would have liked, simply just because, you know, I've not been able to actually get in the lab and do any experimentation, sort of wet lab experimentation. Right. And then I think you also worked on a survey about um, how people's work has been affected by the coronavirus situation. And I think also it might have had some elements of people getting back to their work. Can you please tell us a little bit more about that survey and just really the outcome too? Yeah, sure. So as part of my excitement around the computer-aided biology space, I've been working with uh, the computer-aided biology community who are based in London. And we recently put out a survey to just try and find out from scientists, you know, both wet lab and dry scientists about how COVID has impacted their work and what they were doing before lockdown happened, what they're able to do now, but also sort of in the, the new normal, which I know is a phrase we're all sick of hearing now, but how computer-aided methods and approaches might be able to help alleviate some of the limitations that are, have been placed on all of us, particularly with regards to lab work. So yep, the point of this service was basically for us to understand how members of the, the computer and biology community have been impacted by the lockdown. 
And if you'd like to go and complete that survey, that would also be fantastic. You can find it at computeratedbiology.com forward slash cab survey. And yeah, we'd love to hear from people and, and really try and understand how people have been impacted across different areas of, of the field. And yeah, start some communications and conversations about digitalization and automation and how that can impact biological R&D moving forward. That sounds great. And I'll be sure to put the link to the survey into the show notes. So if you would like to take part in the survey, feel free to click on that in the show notes. My next question is, and I know that with the sign-off experiments, you always probably tweak a lot of little things and you might see a lot of major impacts from little tweaks. But did you ever experience a minor tweak, major impact moment in your research? Did you ever have any experience with like a method completely not working anymore all of a sudden and you trying to figure out why or things like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, all the time, I think. For me, one that particularly stands out is, this is going back a few years ago now, but this was when I was at the University of Exeter. We were working with a very funky thermophilic bacteria, a geobacillus species that is a non-model organism. There are some tools out there for sort of genetically engineering this bug, but there aren't very many and they're not particularly well documented. So we had a, a situation where we were working with a couple of collaborators and we'd been sent strains and we'd started working with them and getting transformation protocols up and running and it was going really well and we were really pleased, you know, to sort of get this new bug that none of us had worked with before. It grows at 55, 60 degrees. So it's kind of a big change in what we were used to going from working in E. coli and yeast and sort of other more commonly used things. And basically, we had a situation where we'd made these strains quite painstakingly like transformed them and got this transformation protocol up and running and then our wild type glycerol stock for the you know like the, the strain that we were engineering everything into the glycerol stock was unfortunately left on a bench by someone who shall remain nameless and we were like okay well that's these things happen we remade the glycerol and then it was christmas we came back from christmas and nothing worked we couldn't transform it it was antibiotic resistant so we couldn't select on the concentrations of antibiotics that previously had worked we had no idea what was going on and It was very frustrating, very strange. We tried absolutely everything we could think of to try and get this protocol back working again. And at the time, we, we could never work it out. So we ended up having to get that strain from a culture collection again, or possibly from a collaborator. I don't remember exactly where, but we basically had to get this wild type strain back into the lab. And we were then able to transform the bug again. And at the time, we, we never really knew why. And I'd continue to work on this same organism for a year or two after this had happened. And what we kind of realized was that basically it was the way we'd made our glycerol stocks was slightly different. So instead of making the glycerol from an overnight culture, which we'd done when we replaced the stock, previously they'd, I think at least, I don't know for sure, but I think that they'd been made from a like mid-exponential phase culture because that's how I later started to prepare them and it worked fine. So just that that slight difference in timing in the you know in the morphology of the of the stock that we were using which we were then you know growing overnight and restarting the the cell cycle if you like but for whatever reason it did not work <laughs> and you think oh it's just a glycerol stock right like as long as it grows you don't really think about it right but that's definitely a, an interesting minor tweak major impact moment thanks so much for sharing that with us so soon you'll be actually transferring to a new role. So you'll be starting a new position at Syngenta. As an automation scientist, can you please tell us a little bit more about that company and what you'll be working on there? 
Yeah, so I'm working with Syngenta, who are an agrochemical company who work on trying to make pesticides and herbicides for the agricultural industry, as well as a lot of other things. But I'm going to be working as an automation scientist. So basically, I'll be working with their biologicals team to develop automation protocols for the transformation of bacterial hosts, protein expression, and then protein purification for high throughput screening to produce protein to go into enzymatic assays. But I'm thinking that they're also looking at yeah expanding that department quite a lot at the moment. So they're keen to encourage the biologists within the company to, to sort of embrace automation and enhance their automation capabilities and screening capacity. And we'll also be using some DOE as well, which is always great. So far, that's, that's all I know. Uh, I find out more next Monday. Cool. That sounds very interesting and exciting. And our very last question always is kind of like a fun question and any answers are allowed. And the question is, if you were allowed to make a wish for a tool that might not exist yet in the lab or for researchers that would make the life of researchers or your life easier, what would that be? A time machine, I guess, would be nice <laughs> for those for the endless hours of sat waiting for centrifuges and things like that would be quite nice. But no, maybe more, a more serious though, I think a centrifuge that doesn't cost a small fortune that is automation friendly would be great. Or the development of ways of pelleting cells and all the things that you know you have to use a centrifuge for because that's particularly challenging to automate. So for example, like if you're making chemically competent cells for transformation, you've got to harvest your cells. You've got to get them out of the media. So a way of doing that would be really cool. Great. Those are great examples. But I also did like the time machine. It would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. I often yeah. wonder how many hours of my life I've spent waiting for mini preps to, to centrifuge or for cells to pellet. Maybe it's best not to think about it. <laughs> right. Well, Ross, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your stories and insights on the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Oh, thank you. It's been, yeah, it's been great to have a chance to speak with you. This is your host, Anita, and we look forward to being with you for our next episode. This program was produced by H Media. We'll see you soon.